Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be back with Donald Casebolt talking about his new book, Father Miller's Daughter. This is, I think, our fifth conversation, Don. It's great to have you kind of going step by step through these issues in the early Adventist uh advent movement history and the young ellen white so thanks for talking with us today it's great to be here again so it's um fun to be exploring your research on ellen white and as always we've been putting out quite a few podcasts and articles by you and they really haven't been seriously refuted by anyone so congratulations on your research and the response Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about um, the visionary Ellen White uh, here in the mid to late 1840s. Remember, she's what, in her 20s or so? Before we jump into some of the details, just generally because you spent so much time thinking about her in this era, this is obviously post-Great Disappointment, really pre kind of organized Adventism. There's a lot of flux happening. What's going on with Ellen White as a person right now? Is she married? Is she trying to think about how she's going to, you know, make a career? If I remember from my reading of your book and, you know, what she wrote about in Spiritual Gifts and what other historians have said, there's a lot of kind of pockets of Advent believers, some discouraged, some, you could say, radical, extreme, um, some shouting meetings going on. It seems like it's a little bit of the Wild West. You're certainly right about that. Well, I would say one of the chief things to realize what's going on is for about two years from October 22, 1844 to, say, October 22, 1846 or 47. The only message that she has is that something of significance happened on October 22. The Sabbath does not come in until a whole good two years later. So it's kind of a, a one-note musical piece. It's basically saying something happened. We don't really know what it was, but hang on because we're very soon going to heaven and it's just around the corner. It probably... Um, maybe just days or weeks away, uh, she's baptizing people in the icy cold waters, saying, if you don't do it tonight, this is an Israel daemon in about February of 1845. You know, Christ could come any moment and you'll be lost. And her husband is, her husband to be, I should say, James White has talked about this, the four watches of the night, and he's convinced that the end is coming in October of 1845, he's absolutely certain of this. And everybody in the wider Advent movement, the wider Millerite movement is totally befuddled because they've had prophecies go wrong three and four and five times, and they still haven't got it right. And there's kind of a, 
reached a point where they're not just fighting against Babylon, the outside outsiders, but they're fighting amongst themselves to determine what does this mean? What 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 happened on October 22, 1844? And William Miller soon reaches the conclusion that nothing of significance happened. And Ellen White has a vision saying, well, if you rashly deny this, you're falling off the straight and narrow path, and you'll never make it to heaven. You don't don't have a chance on getting back. So and you, you have the Andrews family or the Jay and Andrews larger family and in-laws. They're uh, crawling around, showing themselves how humble they can be by crawling around the floor and getting whipped by the town authorities. And some of the town authorities are putting people in insane asylums because they're acting so bizarrely. They're afraid they're going to waste all their, their potatoes in the ground and go hungry and become a a burden on the town treasury. So it's a time of total chaos. Yeah. Um, thanks for painting that picture. And we see a, an Ellen White who is, is kind of creating some order. She has some authority. She has a narrative to share. And she has um, some important visions. So let's jump into some of the details. Can you talk about the missing elements in her first vision that appear later in her Sabbath vision of 1847? Yes. And uh, this really goes to the heart of the question is, what is Ellen White seeing when she says she's seeing X, Y, and Z? Yeah. And as um, from the from our point of view, almost 200 years later, we imagine her as uh, having these out-of-body experiences where she's taken up into the seventh heaven somewhere. And as she describes it, she sees the new Jerusalem. Uh, she sees the temple. She sees the holy place and the most holy place. And she comes to this critical point where she sees a veil, the second veil, to the most holy place. And of course, being that is the most holy place in all of creation and all of heaven. Uh, it's really important that she find out what's going on in there. So she asked Jesus to show her, and in about 40 lines in her first vision, Jesus is explaining to her everything that she sees there. Now, simultaneously, the uh, doctrine comes to be that Jesus is moved. He, he hasn't come to earth, which is the original ex explanation in the second coming, but he is moved from the holy place into the most holy place. Now, if you just imagine yourself as Ellen White moving in behind the second veil, what would you expect to see in the most holy place just from your general biblical knowledge? Uh, the, sh the presence of the divine, the Shekinah glory. Right. So you'd see the ark. Yeah. You'd see the cherubim on either side. Yeah, sorry. I'll get, I'll get specific. I was trying to be, I was trying to be, uh, I had a cosmic vision, not a, a furniture vision. <laughs> yeah. No, you had it, you had it exactly right. And if you were in that most holy place in December of 1844, or let's say three years later, December of 1847, would, would, would not you expect to see the same thing there? in 44 as you did in 47? 
God never changes. And for sure, you would expect to see Jesus there ministering as the high priest. If he really moved on October, you would expect him to see him there in December when she had her vision. Oh, right? definitely. He should be kind of getting close to wrapping up probation. Exactly. So that's the thing she does not see in her in her initial vision. And she doesn't see a high priest with the golden censer, the golden censer being symbolic of the rituals having to do with the Day of Atonement. Yeah. And of course, one very important thing that's in the most holy place is the Ten Commandments. And yet, in her first vision, she sees nothing of the Ten Commandments. And specifically, although in her later vision, in her Sabbath vision, she says she sees that the uh, first four commandments have a little bit more of a holier aura around them than the last six commandments, and specifically the Sabbath commandment that almost has a laser-like halo around it specifically, and that's not in the first vision. And on the other hand, there are a few extra biblical little details, like you say, the, the furniture of some golden rods and silver wires and grapes and pomegranates. Now, as near as we know from the description of that object in the Old Testament, there was no grapes or pomegranates, but yet they're in the heavenly place. And supposedly, it's supposed to be sort of a one-to-one -one relationship. So you have things that are missing and you have things that are there. And so from that, my hypothesis is she brings two her first vision, nothing from what she later learns from Joseph Bates or, or Crozier or the early uh, theoreticians of the investigative judgment. She only brings those things later in her second vision. That's because she's really not getting this information from her vision. She's bringing information or, in this case, not bringing certain information because that wasn't an issue yet if you follow me. Yeah, I think you break that out really clearly. So she's sort of seen what she already knows about. She's not seeing what she doesn't know about. And that's an important point about Ellen White's visionary experience. So much of her visions are based on what she's read or learned from others. Exactly. And, and that's the point in um, Gil Valentine's recent book, Ostriches and Canaries, and also in Donald McAdams' recent book, or you could say it's a book that's 50 years old and just finally got birthed. Yeah. Uh, Ellen White and the historians, he has documented some, you know, a, a number of specific cases where um, she couldn't have seen it as she's written it in the Great Controversy because it simply didn't happen that way Would you check a better historian than Ellen White was depend upon. So, yes, yeah, she's dependent upon other sources of information for her descriptions and brings that to her vision. It's not the reverse that she gets it in a vision and then goes and picks certain Protestant authors or theologians or, uh, you know, sermonette type of material. So you're, um, you, there's certainly other historians that agree with you on this, but not everyone agrees with you, specifically some of our friends at the Ellen White estate. How do they explain this? I don't think they've ever been brought head to head with 
as much material or this specific material on the, on the visionary stuff, but their their explanations have been basically uh, derived, I think, from Ellen White via Willie White, her son, and Arthur White, and uh, this is where we get into some of her other earliest visions of uh, I mentioned to you about Satan and his uh, his facial features that gives you an idea of how she perceived it. Um, and let me just go ahead and read a couple of sentences yeah. where she claims to see Satan. And she says, uh, Satan's countenance was mild and expressive of happiness like the other angels. This is before he fell. His forehead was high and broad and showed great intelligence. Key, key point. In her day, they were measuring people's craniums and you know, the white race had intelligent highbrows and the other people that were from lesser races had receding foreheads and were less intelligent. So she describes him pre-fall as this uh, great intelligent being. But then when she describes him post-fall, she says he still bears a kingly form. His features are still noble, for he is a fallen angel. But she sees such fine details, and I'm quoting again here, but the expression of his countenance is full of anxiety, care, unhappiness, malice, hate, mischief, deceit, and every evil. So she's reading his facial expressions. That brow, which was once so noble, I particularly noticed. So she's certainly acting as if she's seeing this as an eyewitness. Going, quoting further, his forehead commenced from his eyes to recede backward. So after he's been a sinner for X many millennia, now the, the the cranial bones in his skull are changing form, so he has a receding foreline. Then she goes on to describe other features about him. His eyes were cunning, sly, and showed great penetration. His frame was large, but the flesh hung loosely about his hands and face. As I beheld him, his chin was resting on his left hand. Now, unless I was an eyewitness or, 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 or asserted that I'm a witness, I wouldn't be making any statements as to whether I saw Satan leaning on his right hand or his left hand. So this is just one example of where she is implicitly presenting herself as an eyewitness. And this is what this, among other um, descriptions, is what convinces Arthur White, her son, and then Willie White, that um, she really was an eyewitness to all these scenes from, let's say, before the fall of Satan in heaven, through the Old Testament scenes, the New Testament scenes, early Christian history, pagan Roman Empire, uh, the Protestant Revolution, the French Revolution. So everybody has assumed that she's getting all this from her visions and only using various authors, whether they're biblical authors or Protestant historians or Protestant uh, theologians as secondary. But I think we have good evidence now to show that no, she brings to her vision certain things, and and sometimes they're flatly, just flatly wrong. And another one of the 
clear examples. Let me jump in there just to say, I, I remember as a kid hearing that description of Satan and that sort of sloping forehead is something that, you know, I used to look around <laughs> for <laughs> among, <laughs> uh, you know, humanity. And uh, it's a, you know, it's really important to recognize that this, the, this physical description is a powerful tool, um, uh, as you're suggesting, fictional, but that specificity is actually something that, in a way, gives it a sense of deeper truth um, for an audience. And I, you know, I, I think one of one of the talents that she had was to um, give give people a sense that they had an insight into something special, you know, the supernatural, a way of categorizing, in this case, evil itself, and picturing it through her eyes. So it's a it just as a, a sort of creative endeavor and a endeavor with power, it's uh, significant. Well, if it doesn't put the fear of God into you, it certainly puts the fear of Satan into you. <laughs> That's right. Um, another. Yeah, uh, go ahead. One, one other example where she says she saw something, but she plainly couldn't have seen it because that's not consistent with the facts. And that's what you find in Daniel 8, 11, and 13 on the controversial The Daily Sacrifice. In Daniel 8, 11, and 13, it says, By him, namely the little horn, the daily sacrifice was taken away. And then in 13 verse, Daniel asks the angel, and how long shall the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice? And Mr. Miller, from whom she gets this material from, says he looked at that word, the daily sacrifice in Hebrew, and, quote, I could find no other case in which the daily sacrifice was found but in Daniel. And then based on that fact, which is a false fact, he interprets the daily sacrifice and says it can't be possibly any physical Jewish animal sacrifices it has to be pagan Rome and he says he looked in his concordance he found no other instance of this word occurring but even Uriah Smith found 102 instances of it happening in the Old Testament so later Ellen White in 1850 says she had a vision and she says I saw in relation to the daily that the word sacrifice was supplied by man's wisdom and does not belong to the text and that the Lord gave the correct view of it to those who gave the midnight cry in 1844, which would namely was again this pagan pagan Rome. But she plainly really couldn't have seen this fact because the King James interpreters didn't get it wrong when they translated sacrifice. It was very well justified and had these 102 instances. And you look in those 102 instances, particularly in the Book of Numbers. And it plainly means physical animal sacrifices. So she's just flat wrong, and she's flat wrong because she co she copied Miller, who himself was flat wrong. If Miller himself was the only one that was flat wrong, and she didn't have didn't have a prophetess following up and saying the same thing that he did, nobody'd be disputing that Miller just was simply flat wrong. But yet 
people are tempted to say, well, because we presume that Ellen couldn't have made such a mistake, therefore, somehow they find some alternate explanation for, for saying that what she said about the daily sacrifice was correct. Yeah. Well, let's um, move this along to kind of explore a little bit more of what you're um, getting at here, which is, you know, we've talked about the Midnight Cry, 1844. We move on to this shut door belief. We've talked about the idea about the bridegroom, the wise and foolish virgins, the two-part wedding, obviously the sanctuary with its two apartments, which is the part of the investigative judgment explanation for what happened on October 22, 1844. All of this is a mix of what people are talking about. Last time we talked about O.R.L. Crozier and his contribution to the explanation for what happened in 1844. But Ellen White goes, and, and obviously she has visions um, that help to support these ideas that are really extra biblical, um, based off of an allegorical, typological uh, hermeneutic. Um, let's talk about the Waldensies, if you don't mind. Uh, because I think that's another um, thing that stands out in the history that she paints for us. And, and I think because she suggests that, you know, they're the kind of uh, a model for the early Adventists, this band of true believers opposed by the larger Christian world and specifically the Catholics. Uh, they become very important in the Adventist imagination. Generations of young Adventists have, you know, heard the stories of the Waldenses somehow. Um, we have historians that have devoted, you know, part of their scholarship to researching the Waldenses, driven by Ellen White's interest. It's not like there's a, you know, a huge interest in them in the wider world of Christian history. Um, and yet, because she suggests that they were Sabbath keepers, they become really important for the Adventists. You know, God helped them flee persecution. God will help us when persecution is present for the early Adventists. There's a sense of persecution, but also, obviously, after the Sunday Law, again, that model of the Waldenses becomes instructive. What say you? Well, the Walden Seas were kind of like the dark day and the falling stars and the Lisbon earthquake. They were part of the normal everyday today um, Millerite apologetic. They were the proto-Protestants that were on the scene before the Protestant Revolution. Or the Reformation? Yeah, Reformation, I mean. In, say, 1500, they, they existed in... The, the Catholics would say to the Protestants, you are all Johnny come lately's. Christ said his church would never be, state would never prevail against his church, and we are the church. So the Protestants came up and said, well, actually, there is this proto-Protestant group. It's the church in the wilderness. It's been small. It's been hiding out. 
It's been being persecuted by the dominant church ever since the days of the apostles, practically. And in fact, the Millerites said uh, the Catholic Church was responsible for murdering and massacring millions of Waldenses or Albigenses or proto-Protestant groups. But now, the interesting thing about Ellen White is she takes this group, the Waldenses and the Albigenses, and says, completely out of the thin blue air, that they were Sabbath keepers. No one ever claimed that, and there's no evidence for it. And yet, because she said it, uh, there's been a number of SDA scholars who've tried to uh, support that thesis. And actually, there was a, 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 a joint work of about 20 SDA scholars, which I think was called the History of the Sabbath. And they couldn't find that the Waldenses kept Sabbath. But some uh, right-wing or conservative or fundamentalist Adventist scholars have contended that they actually found Sabbath keeping Waldenses that go goes clear back to the uh, Apostolic Church, but there so, simply is not any evidence whatsoever of that. Thanks for um, explaining what's going on there, because I think it's important for folks to kind of understand the ways that this has influenced um, Adventism. Let's, um, you know, as we're kind of, we're more than halfway through your book, we've talked about, you, you know, your book really goes into um, very specific detail about uh, these various instances of confabulation. Let's revisit as we're sort of closing out here the the kind of big picture of the of your theory of confabulation. It shows up again and again as we're trying to understand how her mind is working and she's working within a community. Uh, what does confabulation mean to you, and and how does it apply as we're thinking about Father Miller's daughter? Confabulation is something in contradistinction between deliberate deceit. It's a, it differentiates that. If I tell you something that is objectively false or non-historical, but I'm 100% convinced that as I'm telling you this, I am giving you something that's, that's accurate. Um, that's what confabulation is. And confabulation uh, happens most frequently in a context of neurological damage to the brain. And Ellen White had two factors which are associated with confabulation in the broader population, and that is uh, an, an acute injury to her prefrontal cortex in her brain when this rock struck her, post-traumatic stress, as well as just being in this um, small Millerite group that saw themselves as the uh, ones that are being persecuted by the larger Catholic Church and even the Protestant Church. So she was 
motivated to see things and say she saw things that she basically only saw in her imagination and really one of the most um, the best examples of this is she says that she generally chose her own words to describe what the angels were telling her during these visionary scenes that she would see. She said, except for when I'm making a direct quotation of the angel, I I make the direct quotation of the angel and I put the, that remark within um, marks of quotation, closed quotes, open quotes. Well, Ron Graybill showed it several instances where she actually put as if she was quoting directly from an angel stuff that she had borrowed from i think it was daniel march and um i forget who the other oh krumacher and elijah the tishbite book so even in cases where it's it can be documented that she got it from earthly sources yet somehow in her mind she imagined that she was getting this from a direct quotation from the angel so because of the fact that there is a difference between objective reality as we can tell by certain as we can compare with better historians today for example than the Protestant historians that she relied on we know that she didn't see things that she seems to think she saw and another curious example is in the book of Mark in the Bible there's the shorter ending and the longer ending of Mark and all the text critics know that the longer ending is not represented in the earliest manuscripts and it's in those passages that the uh, rather peculiar habit of snake handling is based and when it says you'll take up snakes and poisonous snakes they won't harm you she supposedly sees that uh, verse from the longer ending of Mark in the 50 golden verses that she saw when she was struck dumb for not believing that the Holy Spirit was enlightening her and she was struck dumb for 24 hours or so. So she saw stuff which is not in the canonical Bible. So when you, these admittedly are somewhat uh, idiosyncratic examples, but it's, it's like seeing an eclipse of the sun. Sometimes you notice things about the sun which you can only see during an eclipse when you see the corona. You see certain peculiar phenomena. That's a helpful metaphor. Thank you. It's been great talking with you, and I think we need to do one more conversation. The last part of your book focuses on her understanding of Catholicism and some contradictory um, things that she says about it. So I think that would be relevant, especially because of the, the debates that we've been having on the Spectrum website over the um, relevancy of our interpretation of Revelation 13 in America and the Sunday Law. And then you tackle solitary vice, masturbation, and what she said about that. So that should be a really fun conversation for everyone. Uh, so, quite, a, quite an amalgamation. <laughs> yes. 
Well, you know, we are Spectrum, so we're open to a wide variety of conversations. So um, if you'll come back, I'd love to talk with you about those topics. Sounds like a great plan. I'll look forward to it. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.